0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omer Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Cedric Savares, the founder and CEO of FormAssembly, Assembly a SaaS platform that helps businesses to create web forms and collect data. In 2002, Cedric moved from France to the USA, and he landed a job as a web developer at a higher education college in the state of Indiana. He found himself spending a lot of time building web forms to capture data, and it was tedious and boring work, but he realized how important these forms were from a business perspective. And he started spending his evenings and weekends developing a form builder, an automated way for his end users to create these web forms themselves. It was just a side project. He shared the project on Hacker News and people started signing up. After a while, he added a paid plan. And before he knew it, he was earning coffee money from his side project. It was slow going, but Cedric kept working on his side project. He listened to the feedback he was getting and he kept improving the product. Now, the cost of living in Indiana was pretty low compared to places like San Francisco. And after two years, he was making enough money to quit his job and focus on his product full-time. But there was nothing unique about Cedric's product. There were already a number of similar form builders on the market, and it seemed like new ones were being created every week. So how big could his little side project get? And how could he stand out from the crowd? He kept listening to what his customers told him, and eventually he found one simple thing that helped him differentiate his product. In this interview, you're going to learn what that one thing was, and you'll learn how he doubled down on that differentiator to bootstrap his little side project into a profitable business with 65 full-time employees. It didn't happen overnight. It's taken Cedric 13 years to get there but it's an inspiring story on how you can turn a simple idea into a successful SaaS business. Hope you enjoy it. Real quick before we get started. Firstly, don't forget to grab a free copy of the SaaS toolkit, which will tell you about the 21 essential tools that every SaaS business needs. You can download your copy by going to com. Secondly, enrollment for SaaS Club Plus is now open. PLUS is our online membership and community for new and early stage SaaS founders. So if you need help launching and growing your SaaS business and you want to connect with other founders around the world and you want to build recurring revenue faster, PLUS will help you to do just that. You can go to com to learn more. Okay, let's get on with the interview. Cedric, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Omer. Thanks for having me.
0: So I always like to ask my guests if they have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates them or, or just gets them out of bed. Is there something that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting questions because it's really hard to capture what it's like to build a software company, which is one quote, but there's one that I really like is the software is eating the world, which is something that was coined by Mark Andreessen. And what I find really significant with this is that, you know, if you think about it, Software is everywhere now. It's, you know, the way you consume entertainment, is how you shop, is how things get delivered to, to your door, it's how you're even driving your car now. And when I think about this, it really capture what allowed me as a software engineer, what allowed me to build a software company, to build a company and be an entrepreneur. Like I don't have a background in marketing or sales. I don't have an MBA. All I knew when I started was, You know, just enough to build software. And I had just enough insight into what my potential customers might want. And that that really what got me started. It's it's, this incredible thing. Like now, if you're in a a software business, you have access to huge potential customer base, millions and millions of people. And your starting costs are essentially zero as long as you know how to write software. So...
0: So tell me about Form Assembly. What does the product do? Who's your target customer? What problems do they have?
1: Yeah. So Form Assembly is a data collection platform that allows our customers to streamline their business processes and their data collection processes through, so through online forms and surveys and workflows. And at the same time, be good stewards of the personal data that is interested to them. So our customers, we're pretty agnostic when it comes to who our customers are. We have customers that are Fortune 500 companies in highly regulated environment like healthcare or financial services. And then we have customers that are just small nonprofits like a community theater, for instance, but they all have something in common. They all need to collect data. They all have. Stakeholders that are not technical people, they're not IT, they they just have these business needs, whether it's to onboard a new customer or get a donor to fill out a form and and make a donation or someone to register for, for an event or to apply to be a student at a school. right? They all kind of have this common need to collect data, process that information, and then Put it somewhere there where they actually work with it. And so that's why we, we design our form only. And what's really important to us is to do the data collection very well, do it in a way that's secure and compliant that kind of meet the needs of our more demanding customers. We tend to be larger enterprise type customers. And what's exciting is that we can, because we're a pretty lean operation and a pretty lean company, we can actually Around the packages in a way that makes sense for our smaller customers, our nonprofits and SMPs.
0: Got it. Now, you launched the company over 13 years ago and you have currently 65 employees. And it was just last week that you closed a series A round of like $10 million, right?
1: Correct, yeah. So that's a big change. So we've been bootstrapped for 13 years. So it's been a, a slower, a long progress and over time we kind of got better at what we we're doing and we we're being able to hire and get, get to that critical mass in terms of you know the size of the team and the talents and the skill set that, that we had internally where we were able to just accelerate and, and really grow, uh, grow faster up to, to this day where you know we, we didn't go to uh, investors because we needed cash. we've always been a profitable business. But we went to, to investors because we knew the opportunity ahead of us. We knew that we could deliver on it. We knew that we could go faster and deliver on the vision for the product. And That was really exciting to just find the right partner, in which case it's Level Equity, which is a growth equity firm based out of New York. really liked how they kind of thought about this, and we just make it happen.
0: Yeah. The, so... First of all, congratulations on raising that 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 rant. Thank you. but I think the real interesting story that I wanted to talk to you about was the fact that you've bootstrapped this business right. for for over a decade right and and it's been profitable and you've grown it mm-hmm. and, and you've got some great customers and and sort of big brands who use the product right so uh, you know I want to really dig into that, but before we do that, t- tell us a little bit about your background What were you doing before you you started form assembly
1: right so my background is in software and it and i i have a computer science degree from a university in paris france and i've spent the first 10 plus years of my professional career in it mid-sized business I had a short stint in a fairly large corporation and then um, and i also worked at a startup uh, a startup that was doing uh, a lot of consumer service so
0: how did you come up with the idea for form assembly
1: So that startup that was early 2000s. So still in France, just, just around the dot com crash. And what we were doing, the idea was to just collect information about consumer habits, like asking people what type of toothpaste, like what brand of toothpaste they they like to buy or whether they're thinking of buying a car in the next six months. Right. And so there was some gamification on top of that. But at the core, it was all about like getting that data. Ideally, you know, sending that data to, to advertisers. But the, the part that I, I was working on and focused on was the, the, how we get that data in the first place. How we, do we build the service? How do we crack out a lot of surveys uh, all the time?
0: Were you working somewhere for another company when you were
1: doing this? Yeah. yeah I was, uh, I was an employee at a, at a startup. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I eventually moved to the United States in 2002, I think. And then I joined, I worked in higher education. So I, I joined a college and, um, and one of the things I've done there is working on their online application for students to apply to the school, which is just another variation of forms, more complex, more business logic built into, into the forms. And yeah, that's kind of what I put two and two together. And I decided, you know, as a developer, it's not super exciting to, to be working on forms. It's really just tedious work, but as, uh, as for, business users, for stakeholders, this is something that everybody needs. It's super important. It really helps you not only just collect its information, but really implement your business processes the way you need them to be. And so I had this experience. I saw what it's like. If you go to IT and, and you say, okay, I, I have this need and I needed you to to build it for me, it's gonna take you weeks or months and, and they're gonna get back to you with, you know, those forms and those the database and the emails and the integration with the back end systems that you that you need and you're gonna get that. And if it's not exactly what you needed and you wanna make a change, you back to square one, right? It's, And so we redesigned assembly to allow the stakeholders to kind of own that, to build the data creation process that works for them, while at the same time, making sure that it's going to meet IT requirements when it comes to security and compliance and oversight.
0: So you saw the opportunity and what did you do? Just like spend a weekend and start building something?
1: Yeah. And it was a lot of baby steps, right? I wasn't sure that it was going to work. I didn't know that it was going to work. And so I was like... I decided to just build something simple and it was just an early version of what is essentially a form builder and I just put it out there I think I posted it in a forum might have been I I can use from you know the white combinator forum and I got just enough traction just enough interest in 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 it that I felt like maybe I should keep working on it and and just trying to slowly improve it and iterate over it it was just free and they could just use it and at one point I think it took me two years to really start working on it full-time so it was a slow process
0: so over those two years you were just kind of like it was kind of more like a like a side project you were kind of like yeah you, it was just you were curious and you kind of just wanted to build something for fun
1: yeah exactly and I, I mean it was I mean I wanted to see if there was going to be a viable business right so I built it I put it in the hand of users I get I got the feedback at some point I was like you know I think I'm onto something Let's put a a price tag on it. And there was still a free version of it, but there was like a more advanced feature that had a very low, I think $9 a month was like starting pricing. And I just put it out there. And for a while, I think I got the first customer almost the same day or the next day. But just because I kind of had built that early adopter type traction for the product. And so I was able to get uh, customers early on. But it was kind of slow growing, right? Uh, first, it was paying for coffee. And then it was, you know, after a while, it, up to the point where it was essentially paying, you know, a full-time salary. So I was like, okay, well, let's let's do that full-time.
0: So you said you started working on it full-time after two years. So at that point, was it generating enough revenue to pay your salary or?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was living in a fairly, I mean, I'm in Southern Indiana. Which is pretty low cost of living area uh, in the U.S. So, but yeah, it was it was enough to and I, you know I, we just had a, a child at the at that time and felt like it was yeah it was enough and sustainable to sustain myself and my family. Yeah.
0: Cool. So, what happened in that second year that you went from coffee money in year one to enough to work on the business full time?
1: So, you know, I wish there was like kind of one thing that I did that made everything work suddenly, but it's really more about slow iteration and every time doing trying to do one thing a little bit better and just listen to your customer and try to grow over time. And when you are in the SaaS software, you know, when you're in SaaS business, it's recurring subscription, right? So as long as you're not bleeding your customers, you know, you can build over time. And that's great. That's essentially what happened. You build over time, uh, your revenue stream. Now there was a, a, about the time when I went full time, that there was one big decision that I made that proved to be like very, very successful is to invest in the Salesforce ecosystem. I think early on, I had a customer that tried our product and, and, you know, and suggested that I looked into Salesforce and see if I could integrate those two, because that was going to meet uh, one of their business needs. And, Salesforce was already pretty big at the time, but, you know, it was still, a, I didn't know about them at the time. But what what they did very well is that they really cared about their ecosystem and, and building their ecosystem and making it easier, making it really easy for people like me, like we are essentially a developer building a product, integrate with their platform. So you could get a free developer account. You could get that exposure through the marketplace. And so we built it. We were early on on that platform. And since then, Salesforce has exploded as a, as a business, as a platform. Marketplace is huge. The customer base is huge. And that really allowed us to to grow uh, and accelerate growth.
0: So you say we built it, and but back then it was just you, right?
1: Right, just, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, early on, there was a little bit of a imposter syndrome where I was like trying to, to kind of build this thing on my own. And, and through the exposure on the platform, I suddenly had access to customers that were like the Amazons and the, and the PayPal and uh, of the world, you know, and, and they were reaching out to me, and and, and I was like, um, "Yep, mm-hmm, yep, we can do it." And I was the, <laughs> the royal we. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, yeah.
0: Uh, but I, I think it's you know, I think where you are right now with a team of sixty five people is a good sign of a a good leader who uses the word we a lot more than the word I right? Right. But, but in, in the early days, it's, it's very different, right? Because like, you, you you were just doing everything for that business. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did that happen? Like, I'm just got to ask you, like you mentioned those companies, like they just contacted you out of the blue?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, throughout the life of the company, we've always been inbound driven. So they find us through the marketplaces that we're on, they find us through word of mouth. But over time, we also build a fairly solid partner network, which has been very, very good to us. Uh, so, because we're essentially a piece of a puzzle in someone else's business. And so we work a lot with, uh, essentially consultant implementation partners that are, uh, that have a relationship with clients that are helping those clients integrate with Salesforce or use a Salesforce platform or they help them with any, any sort of a project, IT or project. And if they know about us, if they know what our product does and how it kind of fit in that, in that puzzle that it's trying to put together, then they're going to bring us on board. And that's been a really good, uh, driver for growth online
0: and that first sort of salesforce integration what was it like just be somebody being able to create a web form and then save data into salesforce
1: Yeah. So, so Salesforce today is just about anything. You can build the entire uh, information system on the Salesforce platform. It started as a CRM. So uh, a way for uh, sales teams to manage the relationship with their uh, potential customers and their customers, right? So, so if you think about customer acquisition, you think about them as, you know, leads and, you know, opportunities and deals and you run that through Salesforce. Now, Salesforce capabilities in terms of uh, form and data capture was actually pretty limited. So we had this opportunity to provide a solution that was a little bit stronger and really just capture the data and help our customers get more out of the platform, out of Salesforce platform, because it's, it's true of any systems, basically, especially a system of records, like what Salesforce is meant to be, is that the more data you have and the better quality of data that you have on the platform, the more you're going to be able to to do with the platform. So we've always had a lot of interest for our product and for facilitating that uh, data collection and pushing that data where where it needs to be.
0: So one smart thing you did was getting FormAssembly into the Salesforce marketplace. And presumably that's what drove a lot of this interest. But before you had done that, Was most of the inbound coming from because you had a freemium product?
1: Yeah, so we did have a freemium product. I think it was word of mouth and just organic growth, probably a bit of search optimization and rankings on on Google. But we didn't have the bandwidth or the the team to really just manage any of that. So it was more like customers are showing up and uh, let's try to serve them kind of thing.
0: And how did things change like after the marketplace? Was there like, you know, overnight you were, you were kind of getting, you know, more demand or you suddenly realized, hey, this Salesforce thing that I did for one customer is actually the main thing I should be focusing on now?
1: Yeah. I think it, it always felt to us like it was like a, a very worthwhile investment for us to spend more time understanding the platform, understanding how our customers use it and what are their use cases. I think really early on what really changed is that suddenly, so not only you talk to different tier of customers, like it's not just uh, small businesses or professionals that just reach out to you, and suddenly it's it's larger corporations and well-known brands and so on. But what really was really interesting is that suddenly you get, this wide exposure to a lot of new use cases that you never imagined and, and the way they're kind of driving or using your product in ways you, you had not thought about. So you kind of listen to them, you kind of see how they're using it and you kind of see where they kind of struggling a little bit and you're like, okay, well, maybe we should make that easier or maybe we should add this feature or, you know, the Salesforce platform is a very complex platform and so you, you can go very, very, and we ended up going very, very deep and that's kind of made us not only a leader in that space, but really way ahead of our competition is to how deep we integrate with salesforce and and how well we can support a wide range of use cases whether you are if you're a runner and you're you want to run the Boston Marathon and you want to register for the race. what's going into that registration process is is kind of crazy in itself, and if you have some time, I definitely encourage you to go on uh just Google form assembly and Salesforce and the Boston Marathon. And this, uh, there was a talk at the, at the Dreamforce conference, but it's powered by form assembly for the front end data de- collection piece. And then and it, there's a lot of business logic built into Salesforce, but it's kind of crazy when you think about it that as a runner, I want to apply for, a, I want to run a race like the Boston Marathon, which is kind of an iconic, one of the most prestigious marathon in, in the world. And you can only get in if you meet certain requirements. If you run previous races fast enough, and it's all like built into it. So you get you apply, and you you know right away if you are if you are you know not in the race.
0: I was just trying to look online if I could find it, but we should include a link to that into the show notes. That would be to look at. How long did it take before you were able to hire your first
1: employee? So once I started moving full time, I think it took uh, it took less than a year uh, to to hire the first employee. A few months of just continuing growth and just just squeezing off revenue that I, I felt like I could afford a rank payroll for another person.
0: Yeah. And what type of person did you hire? Was it a developer, somebody to help with marketing?
1: Right. So it was developer, and that's probably one of my bigger early mistake is that it's not that like the person was bad or anything like that, but it's I made the mistake of hiring someone that was kind of like me another developer and actually first to hire developers right and instead of what I should have done is hiring people who would be able to support me in, in a more complementary way like I was doing so much in the beginning by myself. I uh, like, I designed the logo myself and I built a website myself and I was writing the marketing copy and I was supporting, answering questions from customers and, and trying to build the software at the same time. And so what I needed at the time, it was not just an uh, I didn't need another developer. What I, what I really needed is someone to take over customer support and take over, you know, other aspects like writing for the blog and, and so on. So.
0: So what happened with the first couple of hires?
1: Uh, well, one of them is still, uh, still with us, uh, 10, uh, 10 years later. So, wow. <laughs> so that ended up turning, turning well, but, but I, I didn't know how to build a software team either. Like I, I had no, like I knew how to write software, but I didn't know how, how to run a team, how to build a software engineering team. So, so that kind of didn't go too well. And in retrospect, it's just a lot of uh, wasted opportunity to, to just do better and faster right?
0: and then so once you've got uh, a couple of people on board do you remember what it was like what happened in, and i know this is this is to go back but we're, we're talking about 13 years and so we've kind of covered like the first three years of that journey and then at what point did you really feel like this was taking off
1: Yeah, so so it's been a a long journey, and and it's funny. Like today, I interact with people who've been in the company for you know a year or two, and I feel like we've worked together forever. So there was a lot of trial and error in the beginning, just trying to understand you know who we want to be as a company, how we want to grow, like uh, you know what we should be focusing on in terms of what software we should build and who our customers. A lot of lot of things that we really didn't decide on we had a freemium product for a long time that was great for people who don't want to spend money on on data collection at the same time we were trying to close customers that were Fortune 500 customers and at some point you have to prioritize where you want to focus on right and so we you know we hired early on we were trying to as bootstrap business you kind of have to try to find a uh, you have to really be lucky in your hiring process you have you want to find some people who are good at what they do and also are affordable plus we started in the, so in the Midwest in a city that's not exactly the tech capital of the world so early on uh, you kind of had to be really lucky with you, who you were going to hire now Bloomington Indiana happens to have a very good computer science program there's Indiana University in town but there's a very good business school so we were able to get people fresh out of college on board and that was really helpful. But what we found pretty, pretty quickly is first of all, people who just graduate from college in, in Indiana and in Bloomington. They want to go and see the world, right? They don't want to necessarily stay in, uh, stay in Bloomington. And also the, just the, the skill pool, uh, locally is uh, somewhat limited, right? So you don't have the, the access to the talent pool that you have in San Francisco or New York or whatever. So at some point we, um, I decided to open up position to remote employees. Our first remote hire was out of Toronto and he's still with us today. He runs our partner and strategic alliances, but he um, came on board as essentially our first salesperson out of Toronto working remotely. and at some point it became clear to to us that first of all as we as we need to continue to grow and find great people, we shouldn't limit ourselves to a to the local job market and we should just hire remotely wherever we can and to make it work and that's kind of the another big really important decision in the life of uh, the company is that if we really wanted to make this remote thing work we had to be remote first that means even though we still have an office in Bloomington, Indiana the office is empty most of the time or it's just me or it's me and another person but what's really important is that we think about the culture, we think about our processes, we think about the way we collaborate and communicate as a remote company first, and so that everybody's on the same page, everybody's working the same way, and there's no privilege channels. There's no, like, if you're working remotely, you don't have to feel out of the loop because people in the office kind of have their, their own decision process going on that you don't get to be a part of, so that none of that is happening here and really, really think about the, the cultures as a remote-first culture.
0: So what have been some of the toughest things to to get the remote-first kind of company culture in place? I mean, I'm guessing, like, obviously communication is a big issue, but what other challenges have you faced and, and kind of what kind of things have you done to make it work?
1: Well, so one thing that we do to make it work is, first of all, when we hire people, we just make sure that they know what they're signing up for. Ideally, they already worked in a remote capacity. They liked it. It worked for them and they understand the value that they get out of it and they're willing to make it work with us. Often there are people who have kids. They have, have, or they're just starting their family. They've they've done the, the whole like commuting to work two two hours a day and they, you know, don't want to do that anymore. They want to be close to their kids and they value like the work life balance a lot uh, that we can provide. Those tend to be like very great hires for us. They have the experience, they understand what they're getting into, and uh, they get a great job satisfaction out of that. What we found is that it doesn't work as well for people who are just out of college because they value the social interactions in person a lot more. Because they, um, it doesn't work as well also for people who tend to be more nomad type. People who want to be on the road, on the road people who want to travel, they feel like oh a remote job is exactly what I need so I can work from the beach but in reality, what happens is that the travel piece kind of get in the way where we need people to be available to be able to collaborate to be on on the job and and have a good internet connection and so you can't join a meeting and have a productive conversation if you're at you know in a restaurant because that's the only place you could find wifi and and so on right. But then you have all this background noise going on. So that's kind of one of the things we, we've learned. Like nomad people are probably not a good fit for us, unless you're like a individual contributor and you don't need to, to collaborate as much. We also found that time zone matters a lot. For a while, we had uh, we had someone in our team that worked out of uh, Ukraine and then Australia. And what we found is that the time difference was just unmanageable for us. There was no way to keep that person really engaged in what we were doing with we such a big time zone difference. Um, and it's not that it can be done. I think uh, it can be done very well, but it just requires more resources than we had to make it work. Like people who were who just managers and, and spend time just organizing the team.
0: So you mentioned one of the first developers that you had hired is still with you. Do you have a lot of people who kind of, when they join you, they stick around for, for the long
1: run? Yeah, I mean, our first customer support person is still with us. Now, you know, there there's natural attrition. It's not like you... Like, one of the things that's really important to me is not just... I don't expect people to, to work in this company for the rest of their life. Like, I want this to be a very good place to work at. But I also recognize that people may have different goals or different aspirations and at some point if you know if it's time for them to leave and uh, happy to support them if we can and and uh, move on right so and I, as I grew the company I kind of always fought, fought hard about how we scale and how we make this business not too reliant on a few individuals right one of the things that was the hardest for me where you know I would lose sleep over it was more like team issues and how dependent we might be on someone and not realizing that, you know, they might be burning out, not realizing that, you know, they're just going to leave and, and then we, we're going to be in trouble.
0: And there was a situation that you had with that, right? Where, which caused a lot of disruption to the business.
1: Yeah. So when you're in the, in the situation where you have what, you know, essentially like you depend on superheroes in your team to kind of carry the, the weight of the, of the business on their shoulders. And so it's great when everything's going well and you deliver to the customers and you're growing and it's fantastic. But then that person leaves because for whatever reason, you know, whether it's personal or whether you as a manager and as a CEO of the company, you didn't really understood what their expectation was, what their needs were, and you just didn't meet their needs. right? Uh, and that we yeah, we ran into that situation where uh, someone that we were very really dependent on for just our IT operation and infrastructure just decided to call it quit. And for weeks and probably months, we were in a situation where we were signing up customers, we were bringing customers on board, enterprise type customers, customers were paying premium for the service, and we actually had no way to deliver what they were buying. Like they couldn't sign up into the application.
0: You couldn't get their account set up because this one person had left.
1: Right. Wow. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it took, it took us a few months to kind of really recover from that. And, you know, it was a lesson learned. Like it's like not only as, as a, as a CEO and as a manager, I kind of had failed that person, but I also had kind of failed the business because I didn't make sure that we had enough people and the process in place to, to make it so that we're not depending on on just one person. So the thing I focused on for the, you know, for, for during that time was like, Let's hire an experienced director to handle all our operation and and infrastructure and DevOps, and let's make sure that that person has a budget to hire enough system engineers and DevOps engineers so that they can run things. And so it took us yeah it took us some time to recover, and um, but we did, and we're much better, much better place now. Now it's 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 incredible, like how finding the right people to to run things and really support them and power them and give them budget to, to make things happen. Like now, it's crazy because, so we do the data collection, right? And an important thing about data collection is that sensitive and personal information, there's different laws in different countries that apply to that kind of information. And so it's important for some of our international customers for the data to stay in the country that they are. So... We have customers in the UK, customers in Germany, in Singapore, in Japan. And now, because we we kind of rebuilt, we had to rebuild that, that engineering and infrastructure team. Now we can deploy our application in data centers on AWS across the world. And it's just a one-click thing. You can do a one-click, get your instance set up in Singapore, and be up and running. It just takes like 10, 20 seconds to be up and running.
0: Now... Today, when you look at the business with Form Assembly, you've become a market leader. You have clearly defined this space in terms of being part of the Salesforce ecosystem, as well as integration with other type, you know, similar types of products. But I want to understand how you thought about competition in the earlier days, because you know, there's no shortage of form builders out there and a lot of people struggle with this right i mean you've got a product maybe you know maybe it's not the most unique idea in the world but you feel like you can do something better or, or there's a market that's underserved and you build a product but as you get into it you realize there's a whole bunch of other products that do similar things how am i going to stand out how am i going to be different and so how did you think about that
1: i think first of all you have to embrace the fact that you know if your idea is any good other people have thought of, about it before. And there's gonna be competition. And when I started, I, I really didn't do any sort of competitive research. I kind of found about competitors that started about the same time as as we did, you know, just by accident. And and yeah, it is stressful, right? You're like, Oh my god, what are they doing? Are they doing it better? And then and then you you kind of think about all the gaps, the future gaps that you have. You're like, Oh my god, they've I wanted to do that for a long time, and here they are, they have it out of the box, and you're not on your end able to kind of deliver on that. So it is stressful, and it's something you kind of have to manage. The way I think about competition, and especially as you build a software company, is that you have to find the, the niche where you can be sustainable and better than your competition. So for us, it was the Salesforce ecosystem that allows us to grow, and then we can agree with that into positioning ourselves as an enterprise solution. But this is really the the core of it, right? This is the the heart of the of the challenge when you think about competition. Is like, okay, what is the subset of the market that I can go after, where I can do just a little bit better than the competition, and that's still big enough for it to sustain me? And then once you do that, if you're doing it, if you're doing it well enough. Then you can think about okay let's let's expand let's see what are the adjacent markets or what are the you know the, how I can expand my future set to to attract a larger customer base
0: you know I was talking to another founder recently, and he mentioned something about when I started out, I never realized how big a business I was actually starting to create, and I kind of wondered the same with you that. When you went full-time and then you started doing the Salesforce integration and you hired your first couple of employees, did you see the opportunity being as big as it's become now in terms of, you know, 65 employees and raising $10 million for this business?
1: So, you know, in your back of your mind, you kind of always kind of hope for, you know, the tremendous success and you feel, you know, but realistically speaking, you, you just don't know, right? you like, it's really hard to tell. Early on, if you had told me, well, you know, you'll have 60 people in the, in your company, I'll be like, what are those people going to be doing? Like, I have no idea why we need so many people, <laughs> right? Now that we're 65, you know, I definitely see the need for us to be, you know, 100, 150. If you told me like three years from now, we're going to be a thousand people. I'll be telling you the same thing. I have no idea what those people would be doing for us, but just the reality is, is that you get to to the point where, you're like, okay, I, I see why we need another person here and another person there, and, and so that's a kind of a, how you grow. Now, there's plenty of businesses that are very successful that are smaller that essentially scale revenue without necessarily scaling. I mean, we've been able to scale revenue without scaling the team, the size of the team, too much, but. Um, you could even go to a further extreme, but I think you, at some point, you're kind of limiting yourself into what you really uh, want to accomplish. And it's not like it's a, it's a bad thing. You just have to decide really what you want to be as a business. And to me, I was always excited about trying to explore and, and really find like demanding customers, like challenging customers, challenges and see like, okay, what is it that they want? Okay. And how do we get there? Like if, um, does that mean we have to worry about compliance with? Like something like FedRAMP, which is a very, very strict compliance requirement to, in order to deliver whatever software you want to deliver to the federal entities, federal government in the US. To me, I don't see that as a, as a wall as something that's going to stop us. I see that as an opportunity. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, if we can be FedRAMP compliant, first of all, that opens us to a new market. And then secondly, well, if we're doing that well, that means our other customers they're going to benefit from it. You know, that means we're doing we're better at security, we're better at you know how we we run our processes. In the end, it benefits everybody. So I always kind of saw that as challenge, But that also means you kind of have to grow your team. And uh, in our case, I think uh, uh, just growing the team and then raising capital.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's also you know kind of worth pointing out that you got the 65 people, but the business has always been profitable since you started working on this full time, right?
1: Yeah. We only got to 60 people because we we can not afford 60 people for sure.
0: All right. We should wrap up and get onto the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you seven questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. All right. Ready? Yep. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: So one that I really like is from the, I think, Polygram at Y Combinator is just build what people want. There's no way around
0: that. Yeah. What book would you recommend to our audience and why?
1: So that would be Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. It's a pretty old book by now, but it's about usability in website and software design. But it's really about putting yourself in the shoes of your users and understanding... How they consume information and how they make decisions. To me, I always felt like it applied to way more than just just you know website design. So it was really really eye opening for me when I when I got started.
0: Yeah, I think that book's about twenty or thirty years old, but it's still very relevant. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you apply it to just just more than usability website software design.
0: Yeah, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur?
1: I would say imagination, creativity and perseverance. And that's, I I realize that's more than just one. (laughs) But you know, what's, what's good about being an entrepreneur is that you get to set the rules. So there you go.
0: Exactly. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: So one thing I like to do is check off items on my to-do list first thing in the morning. Like there's a few quick and easy ones that I can just go and take care of. And always puts me in a in a better mood for the rest of the day.
0: What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time?
1: You know what? If I had the extra time, which I don't, I would probably write software, but just for fun. I wouldn't I wouldn't try to turn that into a business.
0: Do you do much coding now these days?
1: I so I enjoy coding a lot. I've built a software engineering team so so that they can do better than than I than I've ever done. So most of my time these days is try, me trying to catch up with. You know, and understand what they're doing.
0: So <laughs> What's an uh, interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: I'm an expert Candy Crush player. I don't know <laughs> if you know that mobile <laughs> game. I'm like I'm like level 1,700 and I think 70 something now. So. Oh my
0: god! There you go. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: So I, I guess I probably tend to work a lot, but I just just really like spending time with my family outside of work and one of the things that we've started lately is um, with my wife we started working out together and that's been awesome not only just to get you know in better shape physically but also having a lot of time to to connect together and with my kids you know my daughter is playing the piano and you know she's now playing it better than i do but i kind of like uh spending time with her and encouraging her learning the piano and with my son we just started running and uh we uh a few weeks ago we did a i think it's called an extreme trail race it was a 10k race it was a lot lot of fun so
0: wow Wow. i saw a show the other day where there were these people who do this extreme trail race around mount fuji and you know you kind of think about actually it doesn't look that hard but it's actually when you when you start to watch that show it's like it's it's scary like how much work goes into those things
1: it is hard and i mean you can make it as hard as you want to be right there's we did a 10k and you could do the the marathon and you have to climb up hills and cross streams and go down ravines so if you want to do that fast it's really really hard but it's you know it's all in good spirit and uh, and so you can you can slow down and you kind of have to walk your way through a lot of it anyway cuz you can't really just run through the thick woods so but
0: yeah i'd be walking most of the way but that's another story <laughs> okay great so cedric thank you for joining me it's, uh, it's been a great conversation thanks Omar. if people want to find out more about form assembly they can go to formassembly.com great and uh, if they want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that
1: uh, you can ping me on Twitter. I think it's uh, Setsava, Twitter, at Setsava, C-E-D-S-A-V.
0: Okay, cool. And uh, we'll include a, a link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you again for, for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Wish you all the best. And again, congratulations on uh, raising that round. And uh, we'll have to do a follow-up at some point to figure out how you spent that money.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, i loved you. I think it's going to be an interesting experience going forward. So thanks again for, uh, for the time. It was really enjoyable.
0: My pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. You can get to the show notes as usual by going to thesasspodcast.com where you'll find a summary of this episode and a link to the resources we discussed. If you enjoyed the episode, then head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're in a good mood, consider leaving a rating and review to show your support for the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Take care.